Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime, not just a tagline, but our reality every single day. And uh, again today, uh, another special show. Uh, as you all know, we've been covering uh, justice for Dan Markell uh, for months on end, years uh, now. And uh, today, uh, we focus so much of our attention on the Adelson crime family, the crime syndicate, and obviously Charlie Adelson, uh, is convicted, and we will discuss him today, as well as Donna, who is sitting in a Leon County courthouse. But we are fortunate today to be um, joined by two of uh, Dan Markell's former law students, and of course, Jeremy Mutz. I'm going to introduce him right now. Uh, you know Louis Baptiste, bottom left-hand corner. Um, he is one half of Webster and Baptiste. Of course, uh, his law partner, Stephen Webster, was Dan Markell's post-divorce attorney, and Lewis was Dan Markell's law student at FSU, as was Shalisa Francis, a first-time guest on our show. She is a graduate of Florida A&M University in Tallahassee, where she received both her business degree and MBA. She's also a graduate of Florida State University College of Law. And as I said, one of Professor Dan Markell's former law students from his earlier years at FSU, her legal experience includes employment law, personal injury defense, and contract law. She currently practices insurance defense litigation at a Fortune 50 company. That's not 500. That is 50. That's a big company. And last but not least, uh, that is Jeremy Mutz, the man you know well. He specializes in criminal defense, family law, and divorce law. Jeremy has uh, strong Tallahassee ties, having attended FSU uh, School of Law, so three FSU law school graduates here. He also worked in the uh, state's attorney's office, and he's also an author, and we'll have him tell you about his books in a little while. But uh, we are, with with Lewis at least, a little bit short on time um, because Lewis teaches a class. Uh, he is the professor as well as a law student, but I'm going to, as you always do, you start with the women first. Uh, Shalisa. Um, take us back. Um, what year were you at FSU? When did you first encounter Dan Markell? Sure. But first, I want to say thank you for having me on the podcast. Huge shout out to um, your producer, Stephen Cohen, for even finding me. Um, I had Professor Markell. I graduated in 2008, so probably in 2006. I had him for my second semester of criminal law. Um, it was a huge get for FSU to have a Harvard-educated law professor. Um, his class was you know, intimidating because he's so smart but it's really, really interesting. And so I, ever since uh, maybe two days after the murder that I found out about it, I've been closely watching the case since then. Uh, real quick, on a much lighter note, Shaquille O'Meal is one of our amazing mods, one of five incredible mods. And I always say it's the best name in all of the YouTube, Shaquille O'Meal. And lo and behold, someone sent me a photo of a Shaquille O'Meal beer, uh, COE. Please, if we can find that photo, I would love to put that up. Um, Shalisa, back to you. So uh, did you actually, did you say you actually had a class with him? No, not with him. He was my professor for second semester crim law. Okay. And, and, and just tell me, I mean, what were your impressions of him? What kind of teacher? So actually, um, if you haven't, if you're not familiar with law school, we do something called the Socratic method, meaning that 
you don't raise your hand when you know the answer. You're always expected to know the answer and expected to be called on. And what Professor Markell did in my year was have on-call days. You kind of had a little bit of a break. Maybe one day you weren't on call. And then I started to notice that I was getting called on when I wasn't supposed to be on call. And maybe one day I was feeling particularly bold. And when he asked on me, I'd said, oh, well, I'm not on call today, Professor Markell. And he said, oh, Miss Francis, just humor me. Or Miss Francis, I just would love to hear from you. And, you know, candidly at the time, it was kind of annoying, but now I just know he was being playful. And um, I think about that time really fondly. Yeah. And um, we'll, we'll, you know what, Lewis, let me bounce to you. So, Lewis, you you have um, obviously your own experiences with Dan. How did he compare um, to the other professors at FSU in terms of his intellectual capacity, but also his ability to just teach? Yeah, I think he was top two, right? And so I think there's probably other one other professor um, who was at the level um, in in academia and also what I like to say the practice factor, right? Because a lot of law professors, are, I mean, are geniuses, academics, but what happens if you take that person and put them in an actual courtroom or in a real life situation, right? A lot of professors, the skills are not necessarily transferable, but with Dan Markell, Professor Markell, when he was analyzing a case, he could make a clo- he could make a closing argument, right? And so you saw the litigator, because of course he was also a he was a top notch big time litigator, right? He wasn't just a professor, and so you also saw that X factor where he could leave the classroom and litigate if he needed to. Um, and like Shalisa says, you saw that in classes, the way that he pushed his students, the way that he called them, the way that he forced you to analyze a case or ask a question or you know, ask you if you consider this and if you did expound on it. And so he was he was respectfully challenging, you know, and it's not always comfortable to be challenged in law school, even though you expect it. It can sometimes, you know, be annoying. But he did it in a way where you didn't feel belittled. Right. And it's so often as law students were young, we're naive, we're fresh. Um, and here you are talking about a Harvard, Harvard, Oxford educated law professor. Um, and, and you're going back and forth. It's easy for a law student to leave that to leave that encounter feeling like they were either belittled, looked down upon, like it was condescending, but Markel was never that. Um, it was always discourse. It was back and forth. It was, you know, I like to call it legal tennis, right? His class legal tennis for the steady back and forth. And you walked away a better player. That's an interesting way to put it. Um, uh, Lewis only has about 20 minutes. So I'm going to bounce back to him. Um, you're teaching a class. I don't know if you care to share what you're teaching, but I'm just wondering if uh, when you're in the role of teacher, if you invoke or think about Dan Markell and the way you approach teaching. All the time. I think that, so I teach a, a intro to litigation class at FAMU. My class is, you know, 20 to 30 juniors and seniors. Um, maybe one sophomore every other semester is my probably fifth semester teaching, uh, being a professor here. Um, and I walked away with Professor Markell's class, but probably, obviously, I learned criminal law. But more importantly, I think that he focused on critical thinking and how to critically think about a case. And as a lawyer, you know, any one of the panelists will tell you our most important skills, our ability to critically think, right? Better than our skill to advocate or write, it's the idea that we can critically think. And so Markell pushed students to critically think. That's what he did. And so in my class, I tell my students the most important thing you're going to learn in here is critical thinking. It won't be about how court goes or how trial is or how, you know, what to expect in a tort case or a contract case. 
if I can help you or enhance your critical thinking, then I've done my job. And so, and I, and Markel, more than anything, he enhanced my critical thinking, right? It, it, and that's important because he was a criminal law professor, right? That, that, that was with area, but his ability to teach you critical thinking wasn't limited to criminal law, right? You take those skills and they're transferable to every sector, every field, every division. And so, hey, if I can be half, to 50% um, of the professor Markel was that my kids are well-served. My students are well-served. Well, well put. Um, and those kids are on the way, I bet. Uh, the real kids. Wait, I'm waiting for that, Lewis. Uh, Maria Lebrecht here says you should have Peter Tragos from the lawyer you know. He was, Maria, you got to watch our show. He's been on. He's had the lawyer you know. I know the lawyer you know because he's been on the show. Uh, Canada always in the house. Jeremy Mutz, uh, you and I have maybe two or three years on uh, Lewis and Chalice. we got a couple years on them. Um, he was obviously, Dan Markell was not at FSU, I don't think, when you were there. Um, About two years later, two or two three years, years later, after I finished. Yeah, I mean, what do you think, um, you know, being a Harvard undergrad, Harvard law professor, one of these legal scholars on the rise, what what do you think it did, uh, both Lewis and Chalisa just talked about it, what did it do for FSU's reputation as being a top-tier law school? It certainly enhanced it. I know at that time, Dean Widener was the the head of FSU, and that was part of his goal was to attract people that would not only enhance the school's image, but also improve just quality in general. I think he was really looking for substance as well as, you know, the, the image, but you, you have the best professors, you attract the best students. And I think that was what his uh, intention was. And you want interesting faculty, you want faculty that bring, you know, uh, interesting articles. And I think Professor Markell brought that with his network and his, his networking and his conferences and things all over the world. That's, I think, what they were looking for. Uh, this question is for Lewis. I'm not sure if you can answer this. And by the way, um, again, Lewis has to teach starting at six. So he's got about another 16 minutes with us. And after that, um, I've got questions plenty for Jeremy and Chalisa, but I'd like STS Nation to weigh in with your own questions. Obviously, we've covered this for a long time. So uh, these are going to be two amazing guests remaining. And if you have questions about the case, um, please put in the triple Q, like you see here, all caps helps me and I will uh, deliver them. But uh, from JJ Dawn to uh, Louis Baptiste, love Louis, um, were the family family's books, I, I guess if this divorce was going to go forward, were the financials, this is how I understand it, uh, going to be opened up and looked at if Dan's uh, motions proceeded? Do, do you have an answer to that? Do you know? Yes, I think so. Um, the answer, I think, is yes. And so when you say that, and yes, as to Wendy's books, right? So I think the, there's a separation in the wall that exists that would prohibit Dan from, or Webster, from at that point discovering um, any of the financials of the other Adelsons, right? I don't think that would be reasonable under the discovery rules. But for sure, if you were to look at the family docket, some of the last motions that Dan was filing, Professor Markell was filing before his murder, he was filing motions for contempt. He was saying that Wendy had grossly understated her assets and grossly understated her income and that she had hit accounts. Right. And that these were serious motions. And he was in, in he was alleging in thorough. Well, I think Lewis uh, froze up there a tiny bit. He's coming to us from where he is teaching. Um, but uh, Jeremy, 
you know, money is always a big motive. And if this was going to be exposed, uh, could that, in your opinion, have potentially been some form of motive for this crime to move forward? I think so. I think part of the accusation was that Wendy hid assets, didn't disclose assets. So she was facing contempt. And as a as a lawyer, that would affect her reputation, maybe her standing with the bar. So it, it would be very serious. And our other guests have kind of reminded me of something because they they've recounted their experience in the classroom with Mr. Markell. But I do want to remind people that originally law enforcement looked at whether it might have been a disgruntled student because, you know, not everything that occurs in the classroom is always um, amicable. And even the nicest people will rub somebody the wrong way, depending on the context, depending on the situation. You know, any person, even the nicest person, there might be moments where, you know, they have conflict. So they actually looked at students as potential suspects in this case. They looked at Prof's blog. Was there somebody that was acrimonious toward Professor Markell? And there were some students that had, you know, passionate debates and sharp disagreements with Professor Markell. So that was looked at. And I think that's what is interesting about, you know, any murder case that in the beginning, this was a whodunit. So they were looking at people on the blogs. They were looking at past students that may have, uh, you know, had a run in and, uh, you know, whether whether some of that was justified or not, that was looked at. And it's just interesting that people are many things, you know, even uh, the most respected, nicest person that we know, you know, you could open doors that they never thought would be opened. And there are people that for one reason or another could have had a run in. Uh, Lewis, I wanted you to just finish your thought there. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think that one, I think that for sure there was a motion for contempt that Professor Markell filed. And so this isn't we don't have to guess. He was actively seeking not only contempt against Mrs. Adelson, but also her attorney, which I think what Jeremy was talking about when I came back on. And so this was something that Markell was actively litigating. And like, you know, Webster said early on, you know, Professor Markell had his hands in every pot when it had his hands in a pot when it when it concerns legal motions. He was reviewing these motions, editing these motions and drafting these motions. I will also say to Jeremy's point, I think he's right, but I think what that shows us regarding the investigation is just how lost law enforcement was. And I think it was because there was no motive, right? There were, it, 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 they couldn't think of a motive. And so because they couldn't narrow it down to a single place, they had to think that it could be everybody and it could be anybody because of how respected he was. I remember that morning, I was, I tell people, I was on a couch and Webster called me and said, I got bad news. And I'm like, I'm like, what? He's like, Markel's gone. I'm like, gone where? Like, like, you know, immediately I thought gone to a different law school. Like, you know, he went, you know, he's a Harvard guy. Like, what do you mean gone? And he was like, no, you know, like no longer with us. And I'm like, what? And his first thing he said was, I think you might, I think you want to talk to T I, I want to get you to talk to TPD because you know, they're, they're, they they want to know if there was any situations with students that you might know about. And I think my immediate response was no way. I think the immediate response of FSU law collectively was that, and of course there's students who get bad grades. Law school is tough. It's graded on a curve, right? So it means that there's a number of students that have to do below a D, right? Mm-hmm. Especially in class. And so, but the law school collectively, and I remember because I was, you know, I was there at the time, you know, we, and I was taking summer classes. I was, I was actually on campus. 
we collectively thought that it was insane, right? That any student would be a part of um, committing a crime against Professor Markell. Because I mean, he wasn't, he walked around in, I, I guess we call them like the gladiator sandals, right? But you know, the, the sandals <laughs> with the straps, you know what I mean? He walked around with sandals with the straps like he was going to the beach. You know what I mean? That's what, he, his wall, his door was covered with, you know, kid pictures. His son's Lincoln and Ben Ben's paintings and their drawings covered his entire door. And so you, that tells you what kind of person he was, right? That, you know, he's at a FSU law school at that top 50 law school. He didn't take himself so serious that he came every day in a nice suit, which he clearly could afford, right? Um, it, he came comfortable and he had his kids' pictures on his on his door, you know? And so that's the kind of person he is. And so, which is why when we heard that, we were just like, collectively, no way are you going to tell us, convince us, suggest that a student did this to Professor Markell. Ultimately, of course, we know it wasn't a student. It was the Adelsons, but it was that idea was out there and, and it was quickly shut down because of how preposterous it was. Yeah. And I, you know, I want to get back uh, to that whole notion of where you were, Shalisa, but um, very quickly um, back, you know, to Lewis, you know, Webster, whenever he's on with you, he always says, you know, it's Marquette without Dan, I wouldn't have uh, Lewis. I wouldn't have Baptiste. So what was it? Um, I, I don't think I ever asked that follow-up question. Um, did, did Dan, uh, he obviously introduced you to, but uh, can you take us to that moment in time? How did that all evolve? And so I can tell you, it, it, I had a, being candid, I had a bad semester. Somebody asked what IRAC was. I now know it was issue rule analysis conclusion. I did not know my 1L semester. So I walk in to my 1L semester and I do horribly. You know what I mean? I, I do just good enough to not be on the, you know, on the list of at-risk students, right? FSU has a list. I do just good enough to not be on that list. And so, because I didn't know Iraq. And so when I go to my second semester, like Chalisa, that's when I took Professor Markell. Um, obviously, I went to my, I remember I went to my law professors because you don't get your grades until December when you're home. And so, and it's blind. So it's anonymous grading. There's like a bags number. And so when I get back to law school, I'm like, hey, professor, you clearly messed up because I did way better than this score. I'm not sure what paper you graded, but there's, <laughs> there was a mix up in the numbers. Um, and so they were like, no, you, there wasn't. You just did it Iraq. All right. And so you didn't spot the issues of rules, analysis, the conclusion. And so I go into my second semester with um, Professor Markell. And to be honest, I have a chip on my shoulder. Right. Because I believe that I'm an intelligent guy, graduated FAMU with honors. And now I, I, I'm at FSU and I'm the opposite of honors. Right. And so I'm at the bottom of the class. And so I have a chip on my shoulder going into my second semester. And so. I'm challenging Professor Markell. Right. I'm pushing. I'm like, no, no. First semester, I was way too deferential and you guys gave me C's. And so now I'm going to get into it. Right. And so and maybe this is. And so I say that story to say that was my state of mind going into that semester, Professor that semester with Professor Markell. Um, just like Talisha says, he has, you know, it's, you know, Socratic method you get called on, but more often than not, I was raising my hand. Like, you know, if every other class, if not every class, I was raising my hand. It got to the point where he'd be like, Lewis, we're going to get to you. And I keep my <laughs> hand up, like get to me now. You know what I mean? Um, and so then we'd go back and forth. Obviously, I've said before that Professor Markell was a big believer in retributivism. Right. Which is the idea that you should be punished for the crime, despite the rehabilitative, the rehabilitative nature of it. You should be punished for the crime. Um, 
I am a big believer in utilitarianism, right? The idea that you should only punish somebody as much as it's going to teach them. And so we were disagreeing. And, and these are theories of criminal justice, right? These are the theories that our criminal justice system is built on. And so we were arguing. And I, I remember one class I told him, I said, Professor Markell, the Department of Corrections doesn't do any correcting, right? And, and, I, was, and I was out of turn. It wasn't my time. Um, I don't even think he called on my hand. But he, he didn't he didn't call on me and, and my hand wasn't up. Excuse me. But I was that was me. I was I'm not going to sit back. I, I'm not going to be I'm not going to sit back and be quiet and get, and get a C. And so honestly, I did not think I tell people all the time. I did not believe he liked me. I did it because we went back and forth. And I said, Professor Markell, I think you're wrong. Now, here's a one L law student. Brand new. Does it a C at that point, a C law student, if I tell you the truth. Um, <laughs> And I'm telling a Harvard-trained law professor, you know what I mean, a corporate, former corporate lawyer, that you're wrong. Retributivism is wrong. Your theory on, a, on, the, on the criminal justice system is wrong. And I'm telling him that just like I'm telling you. Um, and I, I leave that class. I get my grade. And I'm like, it's my first A. And um, I'm at home because I didn't get a, I didn't get a one L job because again I told you guys that first semester was bad, and so I didn't get a one L job. Um, and so I'm at home changing oil on a 2002 Ford Explorer. I'm changing the oil, and I get a call from Stephen Webster, and he gives me a job. You know what I mean? On the phone call, no interview. Obviously now we're partners, and it changed my life. But he says, I said, you calling for me? He's like, yeah. Professor Markell told me I should call you. And he gave me, he got me a job, a career, a firm, a practice that supports my family, um, all from what I believe to be disagreeing, from us disagreeing. But I'll stop after I say this. It shows you that even though I was a 1L professor telling this Harvard-trained educator that he was wrong, he still had enough respect and enough compassion and enough, enough humility to still give me a job when he could have dismissed me, could have gave me a bad grade. You know, instead of giving me, he gave me the best grade I had to date and changed my life in the process. That shows you the quality of the person he is when I was calling him wrong. And so, and he wasn't wrong. It's a, it's a, it's a matter of opinion. It's not a right or wrong at all. And so that was Professor Marquette. Very well said. Uh, I know you're going to have to jump, Lewis. Uh, I don't know if you, you can hang on as long as you want. Shalisa, I am not going to ask you your first semester grades, but I bet you they were better than Lewis's, I bet you. I bet. <laughs> uh, KO Las Vegas here. Oh, look, look at this. I was literally just about to ask this question. Uh, COE, are you like purposely messing with me here? Uh, lawyer thoughts, uh, your thoughts, Shalisa, on whether uh, Dan's filed motion to restrict Grandma Donna's unfettered access to the boys would have been successful. So there were all these motions, um, you know, ahead of the murder. And one of them was to completely limit this, uh, these visitations. Do you think that had a chance? And like the money question, uh, in your opinion, do you think it could have potentially been motive? I mean, well, to go to the second question, yes, I do think it could have been motive. Um, I will preface my opinion with the fact that I have not practiced family law and criminal law on purpose. Um, but I do think that wholly or restricting access permanently would be kind of difficult to do. Um, but I will allow, you know, Jimmy Mutz or Louis Baptiste to clean me up on that. But I absolutely do think it was motive. Sure. And Louis, since I know you're going to bounce in a second, um, and then we'll get to Jeremy and Shalisa in depth here. Lisa White, 
did Dan, you, previous students, ever see or meet Wendy? Dan ever mention her to you, Lewis? I met Wendy. I, I Wendy had a clinic where um, I, I'm Haitian, and Wendy had a clinic where she went to Immokalee, Florida, to help H2B workers, right, workers who are here on temporary visas for ag to do agricultural work, where she helped them to make sure that, that the farmers and the big companies were respecting their rights. And she took a group of law students to Immokalee, Florida, every spring break, you know, her practice or what if you call it that is human rights. Right. And that's where it's kind of where she you know, butters her bread. And so um, she came to my class and I actually was going to sign up to go with her to Immokalee, Florida for that, you know, one week spring break trip. Um, but something came up and I couldn't or I had something else to do. So I couldn't. But, I, you know, I remember her coming to my class, appearing to be, you know, I thought thought of her as a nice person. You know what I mean? And, and, and I. And so when I found all this out, when Webster told, when I was talking to Webster about it after, it was, it was, it was insane. And I, and I, to see your second question, let's have two and a half more minutes. Hundred percent, his motion to restrict Donna's rights was a chief motivator, mm -hmm. right? And if you think about it, just we know Donna now. You know, then we didn't know who this person was. Right. It was just the person behind Wendy. Right. We didn't know Charlie. We didn't know who Charlie was. But now we know. And so everything we know about Donna and we've, know, and we've learned over the past 10 years is that she was in control. And if she wasn't in control, it was a problem. She was in control of Charlie's life, directing him, even though he was a grown man making hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, she was. She her daughter. And we know that we know she sent a message. She's of Jewish faith. She sent a message um, ask, suggesting that Wendy put the kids in, you know, outfits that would offend any reasonable person. Right. And so we know what happens when Donna loses control. And if Donna's and if Professor Markell's motion had gone through, she would have had no unsupervised contact. You know, you have, we have to understand. And, and the most recent jail call with Charlie, when, when Donna's talking about taking her life or fleeing, she's talking about getting things set up for the boys, right? And so we know that. And so can you imagine what she must have gone through when she read that motion and figured out that Professor Markell wanted to stop her from having any access to the boys by herself? I imagine that she must have, it must have been rage, you know, and fire and anger at, at, at insane levels when she read that motion and, and more importantly, when she realized that who the judge was, you know, I practice in front of Judge Hobbs. I know Judge Hobbs well. Judge Hobbs is the kind of person that would have considered the motion. She would have considered the fact and at a minimum, she would have admonished, um, she would have admonished Donna. And so a hundred percent, it was a major, major factor. Lewis, final questions. I know you got to run. You know, a lot of people say, what can I do to honor Dan Markell? People always say justice for Dan Markell. If someone wants to honor Dan in their own small way, what advice do you have for them? Obviously, I end every show with the same thing. I say, look, pray for his family, pray for his sister, pray, you know, pray for his mother and father. But look, I think as long as we just on these comments on the Internet, we keep putting out positive things about Dan. Because he has Lincoln and Ben Ben, they need to see it. They need to know that their dad loved them more than he loved his accolades, more than he loved the law, more than he loved his degrees, more than he loved his Harvard education. 
He loved his two boys. And so the best thing that we can do, we, not just you, we, is continue to put out that good energy and make it and make it visceral, make it make it visual so that his boys, whenever they start searching for their dad at some point, whenever they're Googling his name right now, you know, my dream is that one day when his boys Google his name, that they see his accomplishments versus his murder. Right now, all we see is his murder and all we see are the names of his killers, right? When he was so much more than being, a, he was so much more than a victim. He was so much more than that. And so my genuine hope is that one day his children can log onto the internet and see what kind of man their father was and how much they loved him and that that might be ranked higher on the Google algorithm than all the negative stuff about how he was killed. Well said. Professor Baptiste, go uh, go make Dan Markell proud. We will let you go at this point. Thank you so much. Um, Lewis uh, has got to be a, an orator for a living. That guy's got the uh, the gift of gab times a million, man, and, he, and he's so eloquent with the way he says things. Um, Shalisa, how did you get the news? Now it's just the three of us, so we'll uh, we will uh, rock and roll here. But how did you get the news of um, Dan's death? Where were you? Do you recall the moment? I do. So, um, you know, after law school, I was in Tallahassee, by the way, for nine years because it was a five year program, took a year off for law school and then three years in law school. So I was ready to get out of Tallahassee. No defense to Tallahassee, but I moved to Jacksonville and started practicing law. And one of the girls I worked with also went to FSU and also had Professor Markell. So I remember being in the conference room, getting ready for some type of attorney's meeting. And she said, did you know Professor Markell? And I said, Yes, and they kind of told the whole story. Every single time they would call on me, it was almost like a running gag at this point of, Miss Francis, come on, I wanna hear what you have to say. And she said, well, he was murdered yesterday. And like Lewis, nobody believed that a law student was responsible for that. It was so out of the blue, so asinine that it had to be something else. So I, initially I thought maybe it was a robbery or something like that. And then when they finally did locate um, Sigfredo and Luis and said that they basically drove from Miami to Tallahassee, it was clear that it was a hit. Um, and still never thought, never one time suspected that I was a law student. And I know you had asked this question before about whether we knew or I knew about Wendy Adelson. So she was there when I was there. Um, however, something to keep in mind, law school is a little bit like high school. I don't know if it was the same for you, Jeremy, um, but it's a little bit like high school. We even had lockers. And so back then we did not know they were married because Professor Markell and Wendy Adelson did not have the same last name. So although the story, not the story, but it was true that they are married by the time it got to the law students, it was like, oh, I think he's dating a professor and, you know, all that kind of gift of gab. And so once I kind of put together um, what was going on with maybe who was responsible, I was like, oh, that's Wendy Adelson. So, um, yeah, ever since, like I said, a day or two after the murder, I have been following it. And me and my old coworker, we would text about it all the time because before your podcast and some of the other ones, similarly, no one was covering it. No one was talking mm -hmm. about it. So I am very appreciative to SDS and some of the other channels for putting the pressure on so that, you know, now we're seeing all these con convictions. It's almost like a snowball because there's so many eyes and ears on it. And Shalisa, what's it like for you and your friends that knew him from law school now that it's, you know, literally been a multiple Dateline episodes, 2020, the Wondery podcast? How surreal is that for you? 
I talk about it all the time to the fact that my coworkers probably think that I'm probably obsessed with it a little bit. Um, unfortunately, the girl that I, I spoke about that was a coworker of mine, she passed away from cancer. And that was the one thing that we had in common that we would always, even when I left that firm, text about it. Um, but I actually have a, a really good friend of mine that never left Tallahassee after school and she didn't have Professor Markell. She went to FAMU with me and she even says, and she lived in that same neighborhood, that Benton Hills um, area. And she says, sometimes I drive into my driveway and I would think about that. The fact that this man was just on the phone talking to a friend about his kid's schooling, thinking nothing's going to happen. He's in his comfort zone of his home and somebody execute him. So, I mean, we talk about that now all the time because she still lives there and still lives in that Thomasville, Benton Hills area. By the way, I'm glad Steve Cohen found you. Steve Cohen is the best at finding guests. He is great because I don't have a social media presence. I'm like, he, I don't know how, <laughs> but I'm glad he, he's got the secret sauce for that. And that's why he's part of STS. Um, Roxanne A here. Um, Wendy, by the way, that's impressive that you don't have a social media footprint. Um, more sh- um, more people should be like you. <laughs> few, millennials that, few millennials that do not like social media. I'm like yeah. a 75 year old man. <laughs> oh, that's that's good. That's a good thing. Um, Jeremy, to you, Wendy said, by the way, uh, send in these triple cues. This is a double cue. I'll still take a double cue. But if you get me the triple cues, now's the time. We'll, uh, even though despite the subject matter, we'll have some fun with Shalisa and Jeremy uh, with your questions. So uh, Wendy said she couldn't buy the house, Jeremy, in October 2013 because Dan hadn't paid her, but she had taken a lot of money in 2012. Uh, can that account for anything outside of immunity? There's all, always these questions about Wendy's immunity, can you sort of define it from a legal, legal sense? Because the state subpoenaed her to testify, the state compelled her testimony, her appearance at trial, she has use immunity. So the state cannot build a prosecution on what she says as part of that testimony. And there is some case precedent that would say that they have to completely wall off the rest of the investigation to be able to show that uh, not even the slightest uh, tinge of that testimony was used to put forward a prosecution or lead to other evidence. And they have to almost wall it off. So they would have to prosecute her completely without anything from that testimony. It, it creates a sort of a challenge for the prosecution. Could they use something with the financials and, and, and so forth? Some discrepancy possibly, um, that might be a collateral matter. They may not be able to impeach her on that, but there may be some relevance to it that they could. I don't know the ins and outs of the the finances with the house. Um, I will say as to the the motion to require supervised visitation with Donna, it's not so important the chances of success with the judge, but what's important is the impression in the mind of Donna Adelson to drive that forward. So I think that is a, a huge part of this case that this was going to be argued, I think, sometime in late July, perhaps, or, or shortly thereafter. But Dan is murdered before it could get to a hearing. So I think it's very important, that part. But I think the threat of contempt certainly was a, a lesser part of that. And, and I think if you look at the family, a lot more has come out recently about the family dynamics, how they, they all kind of circle the wagons and Donna is fiercely protective of the kids. And I think even there's some indication that Harvey has made some statements of you don't do things to my kids. Well, they circled the wagons. You know, Wendy was not going to be held in contempt. Uh, Donna was not going to be required to have supervised visitation. 
and they set this plot. They pulled the trigger on this on this plot. Mm. By the way, go ahead, Shalisa. Go ahead. If I can add, like I totally agree with Jeremy, it's not the fact of whether or not the motion was viable, it's whether or not Donna felt threatened by it. And I know Wendy has testified multiple times that Dan didn't take that motion very seriously. I find that really hard to believe because he's a lawyer. And why would you file a motion that you did not take seriously? But it, disregard all that. Donna probably took it seriously. I'm sure she did. So it doesn't matter if Dan took it seriously or not. I doubt that he didn't take it seriously. I know about the banana bread that she testified about, but he wouldn't file something he didn't take seriously. And when I'm sure Donna did. So yes, it's definitely a motive. Uh, by the way, uh, a lot of people are wondering where Carm is. She'll be back. She's uh, on vacation again in New Jersey, visiting her. <clears throat> when you're 84 and a half, you can take vacation. <clears throat> She's visiting her second great-grandchild i'll post some uh pictures on instagram at surviving survivor shalisa i'll email them to you the old-fashioned way since uh maybe i'll even send them to you in the mail the real old-fashioned <laughs> way i don't think my kids know what snail mail is uh the second thing is um i got a, a tweet yesterday not a hate not hate mail but a hate tweet saying that i talk too much and so I thought about coming out today with duct tape on my mouth, but then I realized it'd be hard to do this show. So I'm trying to talk less to whoever that was that tweeted at me. Uh, pussycat here. Dan was winning, Shalisa. The whole thing, uh, why this happened. Do you agree with this statement? I mean, I watch um, uh, some of the interviews that Stephen Webster has done, and um, he has said, and that was his attorney, that he absolutely was winning. I mean, one of the main things, I know Wendy, uh, her testimony is a little bit all over the place, so it's kind of hard to nail it down. But I want to say at one point she said she was relieved. It might have been Katie, too, the second trial, that she was relieved that the motion to relocate was not granted. Again, attorneys, we don't file things that we don't believe in. So why would you file a motion to relocate, but you don't really mean it? So yes, he won. There is not going to be a judge where you have an active father there that wants to be in these child lives that's going to let the mother take the children six, seven, eight hours away. So yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, like Lewis said before he jumped off, that their family is, at least in my opinion, not trying to get in trouble for defamation or anything like that, but it seemed that they were so hell-bent on having control, and he knew how to maneuver the legal system and they just didn't like it. Um, Jeremy, you know, I was just thinking about this. One of the things that I think is overlooked uh, that deserves more credit or who deserves more credit is the Tallahassee Police Department. Um, this was really a whodunit at the time. You know, now, obviously, we have all this information. But back then, it was so um, not only unbelievable, but there was really no um, there was no grasp by the public at large about who, you know, it was almost uh, like it was a random attack. Um, should we be giving more credit to the uh, TPD, the Tallahassee Police Department, for this gumshoe police work? Oh, I think it's an extraordinary investigation to pull uh, bus camera footage to try to find out what cars were following Dan or just in that area to do all the information, cell towers to even get the SunPass data that showed the car uh, coming up from South Florida. It's just an incredible investigation, very creative, everything you'd want law enforcement to do. I mean, if, uh, you know, if, if I were murdered, I'd hope they would do such an investigation. Um, in my case, that's textbook of what you'd want them to do. The FBI, of course, as well, did a tremendous job uh, with the bump and just staying on this case because they didn't stop 
with the initial obstacles to the case. And I've talked about that before. The state attorney at the time didn't want to approve the initial search warrant, the original probable cause and arrests. Well, the FBI just continued to work and, and had an undercover operation. I, to me, it's incredible. You know, anything you might want to see in a true crime a special, they did it in this case and, and to their credit. And I think at the beginning, and, and Shalisa touched on this in terms of uh, somebody that would pull in their driveway and think about this, it had that level of shock to the overall community back in July of 2014 because the public truly did not know who this was. And I alluded to that earlier in, in the sense of law enforcement had a had a pretty wide net that they were looking at. But of course, they they narrowed in pretty quick on this was family. This was somebody who intensely hated uh, not just a little disagreement, but something enough to kill for. And, you know, it touches on some of those basic human uh, things over a relationship, divorce, child custody that would motivate somebody to to actually do something like this. Uh, but it was a whodunit in the beginning and they looked at everything uh, they had to, you know, and they looked at his background, people he knew, uh, people he had contact with. Was was it a, a disgruntled ex-girlfriend, you know, former spouse or boyfriend of, of a girlfriend? They had to look at all those things and, and weed out what didn't apply. I mean, they obviously had to look at people like Jeffrey Lacasse and there's some evidence, there's some that wonder whether uh, Wendy was trying to, uh, do a little bit of a smoke screen or maybe leave false breadcrumbs to, to try to make Jeffrey LaCasse look guilty. And to, you know, she did things that were cute. Perhaps you could argue bought the bullet bourbon and other things to kind of maybe throw off law enforcement and confuse them uh, a little bit. So they had to go through all of that and then laser in on the true culprits. And I think they deserve tremendous credit. I know firsthand, I, you know, talked to some of the investigators at that time and, uh, through the summer of 2016. And, you know, they would uh, ask me things about what I thought because I had just left the office and, you know, was privy to some of the, the inner workings of the, the state attorney's office. And they were concerned about what, why the case wouldn't go forward. And uh, so I got a, a glimpse into what they were doing and how hard they were working, as well as the, the other side of the coin at the state attorney's office. Yeah, it was uh, amazing, uh, an amazing job done by them, uh, albeit it has taken so many years uh, to get justice. But without them, uh, there wouldn't be the justice that we are seeing being meted out uh, right now. Um, there was something. What was it that I wanted to uh, mm, I'm losing my mind here today. Mandy Strong um, to you, Shalisa. Bigger picture here, but the question is, obviously, do you expect Harvey to relocate to Tallahassee? I can have you answer that. But what about the fact that this very prominent, affluent, wealthy, periodontal family goes down this deep, dark, you know, hole and, you know, obviously one member of the family is already convicted and likely a second will be convicted come September 30th once this trial begins? What about that fact that that they had everything and they're seemingly about to lose it all? Um, well, um, I'm kind of dating myself a little bit here, but I remember watching, um, I won't say the person's name, but a politician who kind of fell from grace. And I was watching their interview and they purposely did it during the Olympics and so nobody would watch it. Uh, one of the things they said is that I got so high up in power, I just never thought I could get caught. And I think that's what it was. They, If you have 
access to everything, you don't think the rules apply to them. Instead of going through the proper channels and finding the appropriate motions and actually letting it dawn on yourself that there's no way I can pull these kids away from their father in Tallahassee. Maybe we can come up with a compromise and, and get a job in Orlando so that way it's not far. I can go to Tallahassee and I can go to Miami, but that just wasn't an option. And they had to, in my opinion, again, take a much more extreme route. Um, and then for the other question about Harvey um, moving to Tallahassee, um, I'll say this, if anything ever happened, I don't have any children yet, um, but if anything happened to my children and say they got pinned in jail, I would do whatever I could to be near them. But as we can see, when Charlie got convicted, they were going to run to Vietnam. So do I think, I'm at Harvey, but sorry, Charlie. So do I think that Harvey's gonna move to be with Donna? No, they weren't even at his trial. They weren't even at his sentencing. They weren't even at his conviction. I know they were gonna maybe um, testify, but not even to be there. So do I think he's going to go relocate to be close to Donna? No. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, right back to you, Shalisa, Fly Guy in the Blue Sky, I like the name. Uh, the changing of the boys' names back to Adelson, an unconscionable act by Wendy, plus uh, we know about these very public emails now between Donna and Wendy. At one point, Donna saying, hey, dress these kids up in Nazi uniforms. I mean, how did you square that uh, when you got that information? That's pretty much as low and disgusting as someone can get. So I'll be transparent because I um, knew um, Wendy Adelson was at our school. I initially saw parts and bits of her police interrogation or interview, and I thought she was innocent. And then honestly, the fact that changed my mind was two things. One, if you're gonna change the boys' names to protect their um, their privacy and their safety, you would change it to Smith, Johnson, you know, something like that. You don't change it to Adelson, whose name has been swirling in the news just as much as Markel. Uh, the second thing, or kind of closely related to that is, why are you changing the, the, the one of the son's middle name for? That just seems spiteful, and it seems like a way to erase Professor Markell's legacy. But the second thing that got me where I was listening to the Over My Dead Body podcast, the way the divorce was handled, I get it. Um, I mean, I'm not faulting anybody for getting divorced, but to take half the stuff out of the house, to leave the divorce papers on the bed, that's just not what a rational person does. Especially no. when it's testified on the stand, there was no physical abuse or anything like that. So that is what changed my mind about um, whether or not um, Wendy Adelson was involved. Yeah. And Shalisa, since you're a first timer on STS, uh, some of these questions are frequently asked, but it's interesting to get different perspectives. What do you think about Wendy driving to the crime scene? Just a coincidence. I mean, Charlie Adelson seems to think it's a coincidence and he's annoyed as hell by it when you listen to the prison calls. And I'm going to ask Jeremy about those prison calls in a minute. But your take on that. Who takes a shortcut and goes out of the way on a shortcut? Am I going to drive through a residential area that probably has the speed limit is 35 and it's riddled with speed bumps when I can get right straight to the source. So no, I do not believe it was a coincidence. I've seen her over the past three trials kind of change. Oh, I try to drive up to Trashcott or I drive past it. No, I'm not buying any of that. If I'm trying to get somewhere and I have a full schedule, I had a TV repairman, then I had to go pick up the bullet bourbon, then I had to meet my um, friends for lunch and then I was supposed to go pick up my kids because that was her night. Why am I going to drive through a neighborhood that's probably riddled with speed bumps and goes 35 miles per hour? It doesn't make so, sense. Shalisa, let me just ask you, point blank, uh, do you think Wendy was involved with this uh, conspiracy? I come from a very tight family. 
and this is how this is, I'm coming from this uh, this perspective. My family is very tight. I talk to my mom all the time. My dad, my, you know, my sister. There is no way that they were going to plot something on my behalf, and I didn't either okay it or know about it. There's no way. There's and there's no way that even if I didn't know at when it was happening, that over the ten years that I didn't know within 10 years. So I know she's testified, hey, my attorney told me not to talk to them about it. Okay, but what about from 2014 to 2016? You mean to tell me you were never sitting out there drinking some Prosecco and ask your mom, hey, come on, did you have something to do with it? You just, nope, my attorney said I can't talk about it. La la, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. So I just don't see how, because it doesn't just affect Wendy, it affects her children. So there's no way that my parents, they would never do this, but there's no way they would do something that would harm my children without me knowing about it. There's just, I, that's my position on it. And I'm, I'm with Shalisa a thousand and one percent on that. Becky Ireland, uh, Jeremy, you can see people upset about this. So just to uh, bring it back full circle, why does Dan's death, Jeremy, cancel out the case against Wendy's being found in contempt or brought before the ethics board? Wrong is wrong, no matter what, in my opinion. Well, upon his death, however, there's no other party to the dissolution and the child custody proceedings at that point. So, you know, in order to proceed with something like that after death, his estate would have to have rights. And it really, for lack of a better way of saying it, it's a moot point. Yes, the court could still do something to preserve its integrity if the court thought that perjury occurred or you know, something like that. The court could still deal with that and could have. But I think once the party is gone that would drive the case forward, I think it, in most cases, would go away. Um, and it's not so clear cut that it would have bar implications. As an officer of the court, we can't lie. We can't lie or withhold information in financial disclosures. But it's not as clear cut or automatic. And I've actually had some family law cases where I thought that it was a clear cut case of perjury. I was representing one party. I thought the other party had perjured themselves and it was clear. It was blatant. I could go to the transcripts and I would have referred that to the state attorney's office in the locality it occurred in and never even got a response. It's just prosecutors don't want to file perjury charges and judges don't really want to deal with contempt. It's just something that, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's an exclusive club of judges and attorneys in, in a sense we don't really like to call each other out. Um, and, and I think that's a factor with, with her situation. Mm. Uh, and Jeremy, uh, from Janice McDowell, I keep hearing people say that they're waiting to arrest Wendy. And you just heard Shalisa and I say that we both think she's complicit in this because they need her to uh, testify. But couldn't she still testify if she was in jail? No, because the state, if they tried to call her to testify and she's charged with something, uh, the state cannot compel her testimony at that point. She has Fifth Amendment rights. Uh, she's not going to testify. She's not going to cooperate. As it stands now, they may still need her, as they have in the previous cases, to essentially authenticate certain exhibits, the emails, the family law case file, and they still may find some utility in, in calling her. So. You know, that would be a reason not to charge her at this point. You know, I think they're originally I didn't want to think she was involved in it. I, too, you know, I, I had friends of friends that knew her, although I didn't have any direct experience with her in law school. People would tell me, oh, she's a really nice person. She's a great lady. No way she's involved in this. So I wanted to give her the benefit of the doubt. 
And it took me two or three times watching her interrogation to finally think, you know, this is, I think, contrived in many instances. I still wonder about the drive to the scene. Is that some, was that an attempt to off, to obfuscate her activities and, and almost, almost like hide in plain sight by saying, of course, nobody involved would drive to the scene, take the spotlight off of her. Or was it she just couldn't help herself? She's so curious. Was it actually done? Was he murdered? And she drove to the scene and it's outside the plan. And maybe that's why Charlie's a little bit frustrated with her in the jail calls. I was actually listening to that one today where Charlie was going on about, you know, how she drove to the scene. Of course, that's a coincidence. That's a coincidence. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he he was upset about it, almost like she just did that on her own. That wasn't part of the plan. Uh, for those who do not know, Jeremy Mutz, uh, his passion is writing. He's an author and he writes about crime. Uh, Jeremy, the point in the show we are at is tell everyone the name of your books and where they can get them. Well, thank you, Joel. And you're a writer as well now, and I look forward to reading your book. But thank you. the first one I published is called The Chance I'll Take. It is a cold case murder mystery available on Amazon. And then the second one is a prequel to that. It's called Don't Call It Murder. Uh, also on Amazon. And, uh, you know, sometimes life imitates art. You know, when I wrote the first one, uh, a couple of years later, I went through a similar type of very political experience with with a cold case sort of going off the rails. Um, never really intended to be prophetic, but that that also gave me some, you know, things to maybe diffuse into the second one. Um, even though they're both fictional, they're not they're not based on any real case. I like to think they're infused with a lot of real uh, things that happen in these cases and indeed happened in Markel where it took all these years to get to this point to the FBI, TPD and Georgia's credit. We're, we're at the point that we are today and hats off to all of them. By the way, this is the point in the show where I will get the hate mail and tell people will tell me not to talk too much, but, um, it is official. Carmen and I are recording the audible version of our book in a studio in Miami beginning Wednesday. And let me, uh, when she gets back from her vacation, uh, she already told me that she has a quote unquote dry mouth, which I never knew until I told her she was about to do this. She then pulled out her dry mouth spray made by Biotene, which we should be a sponsor of, or they should sponsor us, I should say. And uh, was throwing excuses out at me. Now, Carm had to read an ad for something um, that you guys will soon hear about. And it was about a 10-second ad. And uh, let's just put it this way. By the end of it, Carm and I were almost throwing down. We needed an octagon. And um, (laughs) we were really ready to go at it. Um, She made up to it for it by buying me a fire blanket, which I've never heard of this in my life. But she bought me which is sitting in the front seat of my car and will probably sit there until there's a fire in my house and I won't have the blanket, but eventually I'll bring the fire blanket into the house. But my point is this, how are Carmen and I going to read a 80,000 page book? And we have to do it quickly. Um, Please, please send me strength. Um, Blackwood or local honey and a shot of clear tequila. You know what they told us is the trick eating a green apple takes the moisture out of your mouth, but simultaneously moisturizes. It takes the saliva, but moisturizes your mouth. So I will try, get a carbon monoxide. I do have a carbon monoxide. Thank you, 
mommy black widower uh you're my irish mother um shalisa this comment is making me kind of laugh it shouldn't but i'm going to throw you under the bus right here not to be gross sorry for the visual but will donna be allowed oh. conjugal visits um i don't think there are conjugal visits do you know in the state of florida uh, someone told me there are no conjugal visits do you happen to know this answer uh, Jeremy, do you know the first thing that comes to mind, unfortunately, is that scene from Arrested Development where they had conjugal visits and Job couldn't take it. But that's the only thing I know about that. <laughs> and, and Shalisa, I don't know if you know, you, you, I, I don't know how people have different levels of quote unquote obsession with this, but have you listened to the jailhouse calls? Um, what are your general impressions of them? It uh, seems like two people who are in denial about what's happening um, that. Um, I forgot it was one of your your um, guests that said they have convinced themselves of their truth um, and absolved themselves. And I I can almost see how they would think, well, Dan forced us to go this route. Um, you know, one of the things I did listen to was the interview with um, Attorney Rashbaum. Um, and thanks for doing that. I was thought was very enlightening. Um, and it was I think he's a good attorney. I think he did the best with the facts he had, but. One of the things that was really perplexing to me and still that's never kind of fleshed out in a jailhouse calls either is why did they want the extortion or double extortion theory to be a surprise? I didn't I don't understand that to me because the whole double extortion thing is that I am a victim of a crime. And once Katie, Luis and Sigfredo were arrested, you didn't say anything. Once they were convicted, you didn't say anything. And so. The per I mean, you didn't say anything to your sister. So why would you want that to be surprised? So I think the reason why that theory is so not plausible is when you kind of, if I'm believing this extortion theory thing, when all of the negative elements were away from you, you still never said anything about it. You didn't say anything to Markels, who have been looking for um, justice for the past almost 10 years at this point. You didn't say anything to your children, your sister, who that's the father of their children. I and mean, it just doesn't make any sense. So I was actually really interested at that one comment that they wanted it to be a surprise because that just actually makes this, the theory much worse than it already is. Yeah, 100%. Uh, what, what do you think about that uh, exchange where Donna, it's a so-called hot mic moment where she basically says she's getting advice from Dan about fleeing the country, and that is presumably Dan Rashbaum. That really complicates the case because, as you know, he could be potentially called as a witness. Um, what kind of curveball is that in this entire uh, saga that's ongoing? Well, I want to say after I watched the interview on your channel that he didn't deny that was the Dan they were referring to. Right. So, um, you know, he, again, he read it. He read a prepared statement yeah. on that. And I can understand that he probably as attorneys, you can go to the bar sometimes and get, you know, advice on certain things like the ethics, the ethics hotline. Um, but I, again, I'm not a criminal attorney, but I can see how that can complicate things for the prosecution if they had to call them, call um, Dan to the stand, not to make that be a bar. Um, and I don't think they would want to delay the trial any further. So I don't know how much farther going to go with that but maybe jeremy could um like again clean that up yeah that would um, be my guess go ahead. Well, yeah that's what um, i would think they would want to muddy the waters with that the case is strong already against donna mm -hmm. uh that would just open up to you know attacks and other things uh, ultimate appeal on the case and we'll get at the end we'll get to the appeal uh that charlie is uh working on with his uh, attorney, Ufferman, who's apparently very, uh, very excellent attorney, a very excellent appell appellate attorney. Uh, Janice uh, McDowell, 
Um, and this is back to you, Shalisa. Does the panel think that by Wendy and Harvey not showing up in court is any kind of consciousness of guilt? Uh, if they're innocent, what, they're, what are they afraid of? Obviously, in a legal sense, it's not consciousness of guilt. But what did you make of the fact that um, Charlie sat there all by his lonesome? And I get that's I think that's what I think that's why the extortion theory does just falls flat because you're talking about a close-knit family. And according to Charlie's own testimony, he told Donna pretty early on, he just couldn't keep it to himself anymore. He told Donna that I'm being extorted. So again, I'm not a mother I hope to be one one day, but if my child is arrested in, on, in April, 2022, and I know the truth that he was extorted, I'm screaming it from the mountaintops. What I'm not gonna do is let my child, even though he's a grown man, but I'm not gonna let my child sit in jail for a year and a half when I know the truth. And even though I didn't want to testify because maybe, you know, for you know, Fifth Amendment reasons, I'm going to at least be there when the verdict is read. So, again, that's why it just doesn't make any sense, because you can take the law out of it. But a common sense juror is going to think like a parent. Why would I if I know the truth? Why would I let my child get arrested? Forget as I, if I'm Donna, forget about Katie, Sincrado, and Louise. I don't care about them. But my child got arrested and I know the truth and I'm going to sit at home and let him sit there. And then when he gets convicted, I'm gonna fly to Vietnam. You don't, in my opinion, you don't do that because <laughs> if the extortion tree, if the extortion theory was true, you would scream it from the mountaintops, but you're not screaming it because again, in my opinion, I used to be a civil defense lawyer, it's not true. That's why. By the way, Black Widow, uh, who's my other mother in the Republic of Ireland says, we need Shalisa on women's hour uh, at the CO. <laughs> She's telling the COE that. Uh, you got, I'm going to say y'all since it's a Tallahassee, uh, <laughs> audience here tonight. Um, y'all better come up with a, uh, a name for the COE show, or you better come up with it COE, but it is not going to be the woman's hour. It's got to be more original than that. So, uh, <laughs> sorry, Blackwoodor. Tattletales. Jeremy, this is an interesting comment. I do not recall this, but maybe you do. Does anyone remember hearing Wendy say Monroe Street in the beginning of her police interview? She corrected herself, but Monroe is the street where the hotel was that the killer, Sigfredo and Luis, stayed in. You ever, you have, have you ever come across this? I don't remember hearing that, but that's, that's interesting. That'd be worth looking at what uh, the context was. I remember yeah. saying that, but I didn't know the killers were on. She said, oh, not Monroe Street. So I do remember her saying that, but I did not know that's where Louise and Sigfrida were, were on Monroe Street. Is that the Freudian slip that will eventually catch up with her? Who knows? Uh, hopefully, George is watching this, and she'll go back and uh, check it out. Uh, Jeremy, you and I were talking before the show, and you told me, you know, and you just mentioned it before, you're listening uh, to some of these jailhouse calls still. Uh, my friend Pretty Lies and Alibi, Gigi McKelvey's been posting so many of them, uh, specifically the ones with Bree. And uh, I didn't know this, but uh, apparently Judy Tsang, our friend from Asian American Legal Focus, is mentioned by name. Uh, how are you reading into all this? Well, Charlie seems to be fixated on possible um, aid to his appeal that he didn't get a fair trial. And he's trying to say that the media coverage of this tainted the jury. Uh, jury selection was a joke in his words and all the coverage of the podcasts and different television shows, you know, made it such that he couldn't get a fair juror. You know, all the jury, all the jurors heard the Over My Dead Potty podcast and they weren't excused. And and so he mentioned that one. They mentioned that one by name in the conversation that uh, I think he said something either AA law focus or AA legal focus or, or Judy's name herself. 
And so they're, they're following some of this, they're following some of the coverage and it's kind of getting under their skin maybe, or it's just feeding into this notion that, you know, he's found guilty. He can't really accept that. He can't admit to that. So he's looking at, he didn't get a fair trial. He's saying juror number 15 was for him, but got kicked off the, the jury. So all these things that he's talking about that, uh, some of that may play a role in the appeal, um, depending on the judge's rulings in jury selection, or you know if they can if they can make an argument that they didn't get a fair trial, and you know motion for change of venue was denied, or anything like that, that they can you know if they've preserved it, you know they they may be able to go down that road. Jeremy, from what I understand, you know appeals are very that that win. Uh, you know, winning an appeal are very uh, few and far between. You have any idea, like percentage-wise, what what criminal cases like this are overturned upon appeal? Is it? I mean, is it like less than ten percent? You have any clue? I couldn't put a number on it, but it is quite few. And and uh, you know, most are affirmed. Uh, the Attorney General's Office has a whole unit in responding to those appeals. And Mr. Ufferman, really in the area, he really is the top. Uh, appellate lawyer that people go to, but uh, I think it's an extreme long shot. I, I think the judge in this case really did a good job of uh, making good, solid rulings and preserve, preserving the record. And I think, you know, George is very skilled. She's very cognizant of, you know, you're, you're not only trying the case, you're sort of playing three-dimensional chess. You're trying the case in the moment, but you're also preserving the record for the appeal and you're keeping the trial clean for an appeal. So I don't see it going anywhere. Uh, Judge Stephen Ever has been amazing. Um, Tattletales, Wendy is the mastermind. I can't say I disagree with some of these comments. Wendy is a control freak from Grant Lloyd, and she drove by to make sure the job was being done. She couldn't help herself. Can't deny that either, I don't think. Uh, and Wendy never called to check on the kids. Shalisa, what do you make of that? The road was blocked off. Wouldn't um, a mother who truly cares. I mean, I know my mother would call, but uh, would would your mom call? Absolutely. I mean, I I'm a grown woman, <laughs> and sometimes there's a hurricane or something here in Jacksonville. She's not even that far away, and she calls. So again, I just don't see that. Even if you saw police tape, which okay, let's buy that. But you saw police tape, and you thought it was a storm, which I don't really buy that. But say it was the case, I would just at least text hey, is everything okay? I saw there's tape around the neighborhood, just wanna check in. Um, I was watching another pod, uh, YouTube channel, and they actually made a really good point that the night of Professor Markell's murder, that was Wendy's night for the, with the children. And she had that stock the bar party to go to. And so did she have childcare arranged for that? Because if she already had, if she didn't have childcare arranged for that, if she did have childcare arranged for that, maybe that kind of was an indicator that she knew she wasn't going to be going to that party kind of thing. So I forgot the name of the podcast, but I thought it was an interesting point to um, to note. Hmm. I didn't know there was another podcast. I thought it was just Surviving the Survivor. Not the who, best one, though. <laughs> who, 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 who knew? Uh, look at this. Debbie Blair says, Wendy is a snake in the grass. On the other, uh, on the last show or two, someone claimed that uh, Wendy is watching this podcast. I have no idea, but um, I do know that her attorney – um, not doesn't necessarily watch this one, but I know he keeps tabs on other people's uh, content to make sure she's not being uh, defamed, I guess. But I think they have bigger issues um, than that to worry about. Nanar says, I haven't been able to get what happened to Dan Markell and the Adelsons out of my mind. Gentle hugs for all. If you want a little break from all the uh, craziness, by the way, what's going on in this world? There have been all kinds of hacks today. Uh, there's a cyber attack in 
something going on with AT&T and then the pharmacies were all down. And then Jeremy told me there was a cyber attack by Iran and Israel. That's scary. 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 Very scary. If this, uh, if you know, our computers and everything go down, watch out world. It's going to be insanity. If you want to get away from all that, what a segue here. Saturday night, eight o'clock. This was a COE's idea. I don't know why she has our wedding photo up. That looks like I'm trying to grab something that I shouldn't be. It's uh, all an illusion right there. Uh, but this is our wedding photo. Look how young I was. Look how young the COE was. The COE, you haven't really aged, but it's going to be ask Joel and the COE anything. I'm definitely going to have like a scotch or something in hand. Has nothing to do with true crime. Um, certain things i don't know if i can answer i will also be showcasing uh maybe my kids who will certainly be up and certainly ethel bug johnson and freddie morris roosevelt brown our newest addition to the family uh they will all be part of this so uh there you go um nice picture coe uh jeremy i overheard you talking to shalisa and since i'm a reporter i wrote this down uh you said that this whole um, this whole case writ large, the Adelson case, may help other cases, uh, at least in northern Florida. W- what did you mean by that? I really do believe that. I think this case has shined a spotlight on on unsolved homicides and and victims, and I think it really showed the strength of the public's involvement in this. And you know. Elected state attorneys will never tell you that public opinion or polls drive charging decisions, but, you know, no politician, no leader can really function in a vacuum and ignore public opinion. And I think Dan's friends, his family, people in the legal community that kept this case alive when there was no coverage of it and certain early efforts to shine a spotlight on this, uh, over my dead body and so forth really drove this and and captured the public's attention. And just recently in the North Florida area around Tallahassee, the Big Bend region is kind of the nickname for this part of Florida. There's now a a Big Bend uh, cold case task force that has just been formed in cooperation with the Tallahassee Police Department and other agencies. So that's a very significant thing uh, for the area and could potentially help with many other cases. We were also talking about the Allie Gilmore disappearance, I think around 2005 or 2006, that uh, maybe that effort will help. But I think a lot of it was driven by this case and the public being involved and showing that people really cared about it. And, uh, you know, people cared about Dan Markell and he wasn't forgotten. And uh, I think that you know, certainly motivated and gave some momentum for the state to to charge everybody involved in this or, you know, as many as many as possible based on the evidence. By the way, Florida doesn't have enough crazy stories. We're also someone was asking about uh, Shanna Gardner. Uh, that's mm-hmm. in Shalisa's yeah. hometown up there in Jacksonville. We we're covering that. We're doing it again. Uh, we just did a fascinating show, not because it's my show, because of the guests about PR and how public relations can help wealthy defendants and uh there was pr used and possibly still being used uh, in shanna gardner's case and i'm wondering if the adelson's hired anybody uh joel can you get judge everett on that is uh, a dream guest i don't think he's going to be able to something tells me he won't be able to do that but when he is uh dismissed of this case altogether um hopefully he'll come on um i saw him 
I don't know that I can't ever remember the name of the sandwich place, but shout out to the, Jeremy. What's the name of that sandwich place? Uh, Metro Deli. Is that it? Metro's. That's the famous place in Tallahassee. Yeah. And and we went there for lunch and we saw Judge Stephen Everett online. Super nice guy. Um, great command uh, and presence in the courtroom. Uh, so Judge Stephen Everett, if you are watching this podcast, know that you have an open invite anytime and uh, we will get you on here when you are able to speak. Um, by the way, tomorrow, really interesting case. I was just saying, if Florida doesn't have enough crazy cases, now there's a woman named Anna Maria Knesevich. Her husband is Serbian uh, from the Orlando, uh, Fort Lauderdale area, Fort Lauderdale area, and uh, they're about to go through a nasty divorce. She goes to visit friends in Madrid and stay with them. He's Serbian, like my mother. He goes to Serbia. Um, and I think it was around February 2nd, uh, they see someone come up to her apartment and spray paint the surveillance cameras like you see in a movie right on the camera lens. And she disappears into thin air. And it, he has an attorney now, says he has nothing to do with it. He's in Serbia, um, obviously a good distance away, but in um Europe, nonetheless. And so we're going to discuss that with who? Doc, uh, detective Phil Waters, America's most respected detective, and Scott Duffy tomorrow, plus the week's best true crime stories. But this is another doozy of a case. And so we will be covering that. Um, Shalisa, a couple more things, then we will wind it up. Um, Tallahassee, obviously not a big place. And there's been you know, rabid media attention. Uh, our podcast, a million other podcasts, Dateline 2020. Is it going to be hard to get a fair jury, in your opinion, in uh, Tallahassee? I mean, it could. Um, I think with, um, I mean, think about the trials back maybe a decade ago. There wasn't YouTube. Like, and hang on one sec. Space Coast, that was a really, this is a good one. The Friday show with the three guys is being rebranded to women's. Very good. <laughs> Space Coast, That's my brother-in-law. Go ahead, Shalisa. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I just think with, you know, with the existence and how much social media is there and how much, um, you know, now the case has been covered by Dateline for, you know, I think 48 hours, um, 2020. I even saw one on HBO Max a couple of days ago that was kind of dated from 2017. So is it going to be really easy to find someone that knows nothing about the case? Probably not. But all you have to do is make sure that you're, you can be fair and impartial. And I know um, Jeremy was talking about some of the jailhouse recordings, but I'm interested to know if there were any objections or any issues during the jury selection phase, because if that's the basis of the appeal, didn't they hire a jury selection expert to handle jury selection? So to now kind of complain about it. So unless it was raised, it, it wasn't preserved. So I am really interested to know um, if there were any issues during jury selection. Uh, one final thing, and then we'll get your final thoughts, um, that always comes up, you know, in these jailhouse calls, it is quite clear that Donna and Charlie are not very fond at the moment of their lovely daughter slash sister, Wendy. Shalisa, do you think there's any chance that these, that this family turns on each other as we go forward? So I'm separately saying yes, because I want to see some more convictions and I'm just saying that, but um, it is interesting because if we're taking the theory that Wendy has, I had nothing to do with it, that's on them. Um, or if she did have something to do with it, I don't know, if, especially if I'm Charlie, that I'm just going to sit in jail and just take that knowing that not everybody else is sitting here too. Um, so 
I think if anybody turns, I don't see a reason for Donna to do it because even if they gave her some kind of like 10 year sentence, that's still kind of maybe a, a life sentence. Um, but Charlie is still what, in his mid forties. Um, so maybe there's something there. Um, I know that one of the things I was really interested in was Sigfredo's appeal. And I know that got um, denied or PCA'd, so it was affirmed. But I'm thinking you might not have a lot of information about Wendy to really turn on anyone. But I'm really fascinated by him because he hasn't really said anything, which is very interesting. Yep. Uh, I'd have to agree with that one. Uh, special shout out to Louis Baptiste who joined us for the first half hour. The professor and a lawyer is now teaching at his alma mater. Uh, he is one half of Webster and Baptiste Attorneys at Law. Uh, he practices out of Tallahassee. And of course, Dan Markell was his professor at FSU. Jeremy Mutz, who could be a professor, uh, he could be teaching creative writing as well. He is a criminal defense, family law, and divorce lawyer out of Chipley, which is in the panhandle. I never knew this. We're in the same state, but Jeremy is an hour behind me. So he has an extra hour today, an hour more than I do. Uh, Jeremy, your, your, your final thoughts on uh, where we head next. Well, maybe that's why Florida has so many weird crimes, because we're such a, a big state, so geographically diverse, diverse in terms of population and lifestyles. You, to, to have a state be as different as South Beach and Miami versus Chipley and even smaller areas up here. And I, and I think that's what kind of drove this case, because you have a lot of that. You have the wealthy people on the beach and you have, you know, somebody who was just transplanted up here and unhappy and wrote a book about it. And all of these things, I think, that just capture people's attention. The Shanna Gardner case, you know, it's just the same type of thing, you know, to have somebody gunned down with a child in the back seat, And, you know, it, it really I think people have always been interested in crime. I mean, you go back, you know, two centuries to some of the early novels, Jack the Ripper, things like that. But it, you can see why people hone in on Florida cases and we seem to have more than our, our share. Um, I certainly hope I'm certainly rooting for the state in the Donna Adelson prosecution and want to see that go forward. And if they feel like they have a case against Wendy, you know, hopefully they'll, you know, pull the trigger on that one as well and, and go forward. But I'm glad to see we've got to this point. It's what we wanted to see from the beginning for, for Dan Markell. Hmm. By the way, the COE was now hosting a show once a week and got her first batch of hate mail, um, which was kind of hilarious. And I was the first one to send it to her. Uh, they called her uh, or after that, she sent it to a few people and they are now calling her the notorious COE. So Brianna is right on it here with Biggie Smalls. Uh, she will, from this point forward, be known as the notorious COE. Um, Black Widow just entertains me. If you put your birthday in Florida, man, into Google, I have no idea, but she says it's very funny. Um, so there you go. Black Widow has an interesting mind. I sometimes wonder how it works, but I love it, and I wouldn't change a thing. Thank you to the mods. Thanks to Steve Cohen. Thanks to this notorious COE and of course our newest and hopefully recurring best guest here, Shalisa Francis. She's a graduate of Florida A&M University in Tallahassee. She received both her business degree and MBA there. She also grad is a graduate of Florida State University College of Law, one of Professor Dan Markell's former law students, and she currently practices insurance defense litigation 
at a Fortune 50, not 500, but Fortune 50 company. Shalisa, please tell me your mother bothers you about something. You've done it all right. Does she still bug you? Hey, I'm not married yet, so that's probably one of the things. <laughs> um, but I, I thank you so much for having me on. I actually am a little bit familiar with the Shannon Gardner case. So I'm actually going to go back and watch some of your podcasts on that because one of my friends. Well, now, now you're going to come on as a guest. I hope. Absolutely. I, I hope. Absolutely. Yeah. But how do you how do you think this? Uh, do you think we'll see a conviction with Donna? And do you think? Do look, she changed her name to the COE. She changed <laughs> it to the Notorious COE. Um, do you think that we will see an arrest? First of all, does Donna get convicted? Will Wendy be indicted? So I do think Donna gets convicted for the reasons I stated earlier. Just an, a, a normal minded person is not going to believe that you had the key to the case this whole time and didn't say anything, especially when your child was in jail. So the reason why you didn't say anything is probably because it didn't happen. Um, I'm hoping for Well, I shouldn't say hoping. I want everybody who's responsible for this case to um to pay the pay the price for it. My mom often calls me a prisoner of fairness because I like things to be fair. And that's probably why I've been watching this case for such so long, because it's it's not right for someone to be executed in their driveway and people just walk away scot-free. Um, but I do recognize that the state is like Hamilton. Then we have they want to throw it throw away their one shot. And so they want to be very careful with indicting Wendy and then making sure they can get a conviction. But my hope and prayer and is that every single person that even had the whiff or the slightest touch on this case that made this murder happen is going to serve their time in jail. Uh, very well said. Sharon Curland, what you don't know, we have another channel, Best Trials in True Crime, so you can watch all the trials you want. And the COE and I, look at this, you put it right up. We're covering Michelle Triconis right now on our Best Trials channel. Please, please, please subscribe to that and uh, follow us there. We're going to be covering Chad Daybell and a bunch of other big trials, the uh, so-called suitcase murder with Sarah Boone. We're going to be covering that. So, so that one, yeah, yeah going to be some interesting ones coming up. My man, Wesley John Holmes, he is an Aussie living in Tokyo. Love STS Nation. I always say best guest, better community, the best community in all the YouTube, not just true crime, but in all the world. So maybe just for that one reason, Shalisa, you should get on uh, on the socials. But we'll keep you on top of everything until tomorrow at noon. Love you, America. Love you, Tallahassee. Love you. Yes, he did get a final word. I would never forget, Jeremy. He, he got a final word. And uh, love interrupting me, the notorious COE. Love you, Tallahassee. Love you, Jacksonville. Ruining the flow. Love you, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Jeremy, give us one more final word. What's your final word? Well, thank you for having me on. It's, these truly are the best guests tonight, and I, and I really am honored to be in y'all's company and look forward to being on again. <laughs> that was awkward for both of us, COE. But, Jeremy, <laughs> thank you. Justice for Dan Martell. Until tomorrow, Final seconds of the game, a chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. 
Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks. 